marks the beginning of part two of a, of a series that we actually began back in, I believe, mid-September. And so if you're, if you're new to this place this morning, uh, just to kind of catch you up to speed, we will have a previously on Hebrews moment this morning where we can kind of fill you in a little bit. But I would encourage you to go back, go to our website and check out the, the first set of sermons that have kind of led us up to where we are this morning. I think you'll be served really well by that. And I would also encourage you, over the last four weeks, we hit the pause button on our study of the book of Hebrews to do a study on the church for four weeks, part of which involved a Q&A session uh, in, in the second, third, and fourth weeks of, of that series. The podcast for the sermons and the Q&A are both on the church's website. And so if you have questions about the church at large, um, questions about this particular expression of the local church, I think you'd be served very well by going to the website and, and exploring some of those things. But as I mentioned, uh, this morning uh, marks the beginning of part two of our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, a book that is not only fascinating but unique um, in terms of its contribution to the scriptures. Um, if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews, you, you come to find that um, it's a book that shows us that the Bible is not some uh, sort of collection of loosely put together piecemealed stories. I don't know what kind of tradition you grew up in. For me personally, I grew up in the deep south. So I, I grew up um, south of the Mason-Dixon line in the state of Georgia, known as Macon. Um, everything below that is the deep, deep south. And um, I remember my experiences. I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I was in and out. So we had our seasons where we would connect for a matter of a few months, and then we'd be gone for a few years, and then we'd be back for a few more months. And remember, much of my experience growing up was that the Bible was a bunch of loosely put together stories with a bunch of uh, heroes that we were meant to emulate our lives after. And the book of Hebrews uh, actually refutes that kind of thinking, that sort of lens being brought to the Scripture. Um, the book of Hebrews puts on display this tapestry that, that the Bible is one beautifully interwoven, overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the capital H hero of the whole thing. The book of Hebrews puts that beautifully interwoven story of redemption on full display. At its heart, we've talked about this in part one, the book of Hebrews is a warning. It's an appeal. It's written to a group of people saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity, to revert back to the Old Testament law and priesthood and sacrificial system and, and temple and covenant. This letter is meant to be a word of exhortation, which is why toward the very end of the letter, you get this in chapter 13, verse 22. The author of Hebrews says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's a warning, which is why you have that phrase, bear with. Warnings can be found throughout the entire book. They, they actually shape the doctrinal teaching of the book. And the warnings are not just for those uh, within the Christian population who are not really followers of Jesus. The warnings are also God's grace to those of us who are Christ followers and helping us persevere to the finish line. Because we haven't crossed the finish line yet, the author of Hebrews wants us to sense the urgency of continuing to fix our eyes on and see and savor Jesus. And he actually helps us to do that very thing. He doesn't just tell us, hey, see and savor Jesus, but rather he puts this Jesus whom he wants us to see and savor on full display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. In fact, that's much of what part one of this series was about, beholding the superior son of God. If there was a previously on Hebrews, you'd essentially get blasted with all these glorious truths about Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. 
the exact imprint of God's nature, the preexistent creator of all things, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who made purification for sins through the shedding of his blood, the one who seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the rightful heir of all things, God's ultimate and final message to mankind, superior to the angels, superior to fallen man, superior to Moses. He's the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. He's the mediator of a greater covenant that God has established through his blood. He is the exalted high priest of heaven who intercedes on behalf of the very ones that he bled and died for. Part one was much about putting Jesus on full display in such a way that we're changed by the beholding. I'm going to do it again. If you were around in the fall, you heard my illustration a number of times. I'm really sorry if you heard it a number of times because you were present a number of times, but it's so critical to our understanding of what the author of Hebrews is doing. Back in the fall, I shared this illustration of my daughter on the beach when we were on vacation in October. About midway through the week on a Wednesday evening, we're out on our family walk down the beach, and all of a sudden, my oldest daughter, Lanier, just absolutely loses her mind, screaming, Daddy, Daddy, it's the moon. Do you see it, Daddy? Do you see it? Up in the sky, it's the moon. It's a full moon. Is it a full moon, Daddy? Because she didn't really know what a full moon was, so she's trying to figure it out on the spot. But nonetheless, she was amped up in that moment because it was the first time that she had ever seen the moon when it wasn't on a screen or in a book. She was seeing it in real life for the first time. That was Wednesday night. Thursday night, the very next evening, we did our same thing, our routine family walk on the beach, and, and it was part two all over again. Daddy, it's the moon, as if we hadn't done that on Wednesday night. For me, I'm thinking, we just hit the repeat button on something that's already been done, and for her, she's thinking, it's a new day. What are you talking about? Like, we're supposed to behold all over again. That, that's the heart of the book of Hebrews. That's the heart of Christianity is as long as it is called today, behold, see, and savor the superior Son of God. And in the beholding, watch. Watch as He changes you. Watch as He shapes you and conforms you into His very image. Part one was, look at Jesus, isn't He glorious? Part two of this series represents a shift. And it's not a shift in the sense of, okay, we can just set aside the beholding of Jesus now. No, we behold Jesus until he returns or we die. That's the Christian life. Part two of this series is a shift in the sense that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that something happens as we behold Jesus. In putting Jesus on full display for 10 glorious chapters, the author of Hebrews now presents us with this call to faith and endurance. He sprinkled it in in, in part one from time to time, but now, now he's really ramping up this call to faith and endurance, that all of those glorious truths about Jesus are meant to create in us a settled confidence, a confidence in God and his promises, a confidence that drives us to keep trusting, to keep enduring, to keep persevering. And so I would say this, if you come into this auditorium this morning struggling to keep pressing on, you've come to the right place. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Uh, you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, um, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Um, we'd love to know that you're exploring the truth claims of the scriptures on your own time as you exit this place. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive into these first six verses of Hebrews 11. God, 
God, we are about to venture into the subject matter of faith. And what you tell us in chapter 12 of this incredible book of the Bible is that you are the author and perfecter of faith. You're the giver of faith. And so we need you. We need your grace. We need you to give us the very gift that we long for, that we long to see strengthened in our lives. God, would you move mightily? I pray that we would exit this place this morning and in the coming weeks as we continue to work our way to the end of this incredible book and that as a result of our time in it, that we would find our faith strengthened, that we would find ourselves with a greater sense of settled confidence in who you are and the promises that you have made to us and that the strengthening of our settled confidence would radically and drastically shape the way that we face present tense realities, good or bad, whether suffering or free from laboring, that we would move forward with, with and in faith by your grace. Holy Spirit, would you move and stir in our hearts in these moments to come as we spend time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we closed out part one of this series with the following words from Hebrews chapter 10. You probably see it right there in front of you on the page. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those who have faith. The, the author of Hebrews could have just jumped right from chapter 10 to chapter 12, but he, he sees some sense of a value in uh, showing the unfolding redemptive story of God, including men and women of faith throughout the ages. Examples of those who uh, embrace the word of God and the promises of God in such a way that it, it radically impacted the way that they looked at and engaged present tense reality. Chapter 11 is meant to do that in us. It's meant to strengthen and deepen our confidence in God and his promises in such a way that it radically impacts the way we look at and engage present tense realities in our lives. One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right off the bat, let me just, let me just throw out a couple of disclaimers this morning. Disclaimer number one, the author of Hebrews is not writing to a group of secular humanists, atheists, or agnostics. The author of Hebrews is writing to a people steeped in tradition after tradition of religious belief and customs. He's writing to a group of people who are being tempted to abandon faith in Jesus for faith in all of the religious offices, institutions, etc., that ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. So I'm not going to spend time this morning tackling the apologetic issues having to do with faith, though I do think that's important, and I'm happy to commend resources to you if you're wrestling with questions of faith and reason and, and you have your doubts about the Christian worldview. Not only would I like to commend resources to you, but I'd love to meet up with you and, and talk about those doubts that you have as it pertains to the Christian worldview. Um, our, our mission as a church is to point people to, to Jesus. And so if you're wrestling with why you should give your life to Jesus, um, I can think of uh, very few greater conversations to sit down and have than that. But this morning, I'm going to try to focus in, to hone in on the intention of the, the author in penning these very words. So that's disclaimer 
number one. It's not going to be a high uh, apologetically driven sermon this morning, though that's important in terms of matters of faith. Disclaimer number two, and I think this is a big one. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, if you've, if you've been a Christian for very long, you're probably familiar with this verse. It's a very famous verse. It's made it on a number of coffee mugs and T-shirts and um, framed uh, hangings on people's walls within Christendom, and rightly so. It's, it's a very encouraging verse. It's a very succinct verse, and, and it, it presents itself as if it's Webster's Dictionary definition of faith, right? Faith is blank. Like you would think if you open Webster's Dictionary and you looked up faith that you would see Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And yet, the reality is this. Hebrews chapter 11 is no more comprehensive in unpacking the subject of faith than 1 Corinthians 13 is comprehensive in unpacking the subject of love. 1 Corinthians 13, it's been declared to be the love chapter within Christendom, right? And it has much to say about love. Make no mistake about that. But there's so much more that the Bible has to say about love than what you find in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't tell you that greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't tell you that God is love. It tells you some great things about love, but the fullness of the scriptures help to paint a picture of what love is and what we're to understand as we think about that, that very word, that very virtue. In the same way, Hebrews chapter 11 has much to say about faith, a great deal in fact. It's a significant chapter as it pertains to our understanding of what faith is, how faith works. It does answer some of our questions having to do with faith, but it doesn't say everything about faith. The Bible from cover to cover teaches us about faith. Here, here we get a glimpse into a more concentrated passage of scripture as it pertains to matters of faith. And so I would say if you want the full story on faith, you're going to have to engage the full story of Scripture. In fact, that's essentially what the author of Hebrews does in chapter 11, is it not? He, he gives us this verse 1, this is what faith is, but then he takes us back to creation, as we'll see in verse 3, and then walks us through the pages of redemptive history. He's basically saying you need a crash course in the Bible if you want to get a full grasp and understanding of what faith is. But we can grasp some things about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Here we're told in verse 1 that faith is both assurance and conviction. That faith is not a hunch. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a naively optimistic leap in the dark hoping that there's a floor somewhere nearby. Faith is both assurance and conviction. And that assurance and conviction have to do with things hoped for and things not seen. So there's a, there's a future aspect of faith. The assurance of things hoped for, things that have not yet come to pass, things that have not yet been fulfilled. Some translations, maybe yours has it this way, not as assurance or confidence of things hoped for, but the substance. And, and most commentators have no problem with that because those things that we hope for create something of substance within us as we face present tense circumstances in life. And then there's the, the conviction of things not seen, things that are beyond our visible perception of reality in some sense. Again, some, translation, some translations have it as not the conviction of things not seen, but as the evidence. And again, most commentaries have no problem with that either because it's faith that gives us the eyes to see that which we can't see otherwise. We know that, that there's both a future and visible aspect of faith because if you fast forward to verse 6, 
you'll notice that faith involves believing that, one, God exists, a God that we can't visibly see, and it involves believing that he rewards those who seek him, a hope in what the future holds that impacts how we live our lives in the present. So it's a both and. But, but here's the reality, and we'll see this over the course of the next couple of weeks, that most of the examples in chapter 11 have to do with that future aspect of faith, the trusting in God's promises. It's a, it's a chapter filled with example after example of people who believed in the promises of God and who lived in the present in light of future glories, you might say. As William Lane says in his commentary, faith is an effective power directed toward the future. It, it, brings from a, it springs from a direct personal encounter with the living God. The forward-looking capacity of faith enables an individual to venture courageously and serenely into an unseen future supported only by the Word of God. You see it over and over again as we work our way through this chapter of the Bible over the next couple of weeks. In some sense, you could say it this way, faith is a declarative yes to the question, did God really say? If we could kind of simplify it, did God really say? See, example after example of people who, over the course of redemptive history, said, yes, God really did say. And and that yes on our part is commendable to the Lord. Look at verse 2. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. If you've ever wondered how people in the Old Testament were saved, it's in the same way that, that you've been saved if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith. The people of the Old Testament were, they were immersed in the shadows of the atonement. You need a priest, but yours keeps dying and has to offer sacrifices for his own sin. We looked at that in part one of this series. You need a sacrifice, but the blood of bulls and goats can't take away your sin. All of those things were were pointing to the coming of a Savior, a Savior who was promised to the very human beings, uh, the very first ones to step onto the stage of human history in a garden so very long ago. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, you have this promise of a hero who would come to rescue his people from the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. And and, and ever since then, from Genesis 3.15 on, we've been looking for that hero to come. Salvation has always been about faith. Now, I don't know about you, we try not to get into hero worship around here unless it's Jesus that we're worshiping, but make no mistake about it, Hebrews chapter 11 has been declared to be the hall of faith for, for a reason. Um, there, there is something heroic about what we see in this chapter, and we'll tease that out over the course of the next few weeks. I, I don't know about you, if there's anyone other than Jesus I want to be compared to in all the Bible, here's the list, like, here's the go-to. Um, but, but notice that right off the bat in chapter 11, notice that what the author of Hebrews is championing is not these people's accomplishments, but rather their faith. Without faith, none of the good things that you read about in the lives of these people comes to pass. Over and over again in this chapter, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. In fact, I believe there are 18 times in this chapter that a sentence begins with the words, By faith. Verse 3. By faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. If, If biblical faith in some sense is a declarative yes to the question, did God really say? Then it makes perfect sense that the first 
example in this chapter would have to do with the very first record we have of God saying something. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. The the author of Hebrews takes us back to the very beginning of creation, to the booming declarative, let there be's of the creating of the heavens and the earth. It's what theologians refer to as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Psalm 33 verse six says it this way, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. We're, We're talking And I think this is critical to get our minds around as we think about faith. We're talking about a God whose spoken word is so powerful that he said, let there be light and light as if it were part of some mafia movie said, you got it. I don't really have a choice in the matter. I'm now going to exist. You understand that that same power backs up every one of God's promises, which are also his spoken word. If God's word is powerful enough to create stars, think of the power that supports every promise that he's ever made to you. It's quite unbelievable. God's word is critical to faith because it's God's word that is attached to every one of God's promises. And that very word that's attached to every promise that God's ever made is the same word that powerfully brought the world into existence. You ever thought about that? That a deep study of creation could actually strengthen your faith in God's promises. The promises of God find their yes in Jesus and they are strong. They are as strong as that moment when God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now you might have thought to yourself within the last few minutes at some point, Isn't verse six a little weird of a spot to stop? I mean, that's not even at the end of a paragraph, bro. Like you, like, did you do your homework this week? There's no bold font subtitle there. I mean, you didn't, like you just cut it off right in the middle of a paragraph in my Bible, at least with my translation. Why verse six? Why are we stopping there? Doesn't seem to be a natural break in the action. Here's why. As we move past the creation story in verse three, we, we get a glimpse of the first couple of human beings in this divine drama to actually walk by faith. And those first couple of human beings, they actually provide us with a summary of this entire chapter. Let me show you what I mean. Verses four and five say this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Notice that the author of Hebrews doesn't get into the details of either of these men's stories in Hebrews chapter 11. He's not out to explain what the book of Genesis already explains quite quite well. He's actually taking us to a, a higher altitude. He wants us to see both a commonality and a contrast here. Notice that you have Abel, on the one hand, who was viciously murdered by his brother. And on the other hand, you have Enoch, who didn't die. There's the contrast. What's the commonality? What do these two men have in common? Answer, faith. Walking by faith, one was slaughtered. Walking by faith, the other escaped death. All right, this is a huge deal. We're going to talk about this next week as well. 
in this chapter, you're going to see some who, because of their faith, experience great blessing in this life. And you're going to see others who, because of their faith, experience great suffering in this life. And here's the critical thing to grab hold of. Both are pleasing to God. This chapter, this is so, so important. This chapter of the Bible declares that the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. Faith isn't always rewarded in the same way in this life. That Some of us will love Jesus and live a pretty comfortable life. Many of us probably in South Metro Atlanta. Others of us will love Jesus and will suffer a great deal for it. Which helps us to better understand what the author of Hebrews has been doing for 10 chapters now. Right? He's been putting Jesus on full display as the greatest treasure in all of the universe. He's saying, Jesus better be your treasure because you have no idea where faith in him might take you. But with faith in Jesus and with a view of him in all of his fullness, glory, and grace, like my daughter beholding the moon on a beach, you can persevere like Enoch and Abel. In, in both seasons of comfort and in the furnace of affliction when it comes your way. Verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Let me just, let me just stop for a second and say if you're not a Christian... That's the phrase in Hebrews chapter 11, these first six verses that I, that I want you to wrestle with this morning. Religion says that God is pleased with the good guys and displeased with the bad guys, so be a good guy and God will be pleased with you. But the gospel says otherwise. The gospel says there are not good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys and Jesus who came to save bad guys like you and me. That our religious pedigree cannot save us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Verse six says, Paul backs that up and supports that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you're not a Christian, the cry of Hebrews chapter 11 is this. Put your faith in Jesus who lived the sinless life that you could never live who died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, you can be pleasing in the eyes of God. Again, if you want to talk more about what that means and what that looks like, I would love to connect with you after this service. Now, obviously, verse 6, the great emphasis here is not on what it means to become a follower of Jesus so much as, as it's an emphasis on the day-to-day -day practice of faith in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. If you're a Christian, what does is, what is faith that pleases God look like? Well, according to verse 6, faith is not only belief in God, but believing God. It's not just believing that He's there. It's a settled confidence that His promises will, in fact, come to pass. They will come true. Just as sure as He spoke stars into existence, so His promises are sure. That's faith. Bound in the pages of Scripture, we're not left to human speculation because we have divine revelation in the very Word of God in our hand. Some of us, even this morning, need to hear that in the midst of a season of great comfort. Others of us need to hear that in the midst of, of great brokenness and heartache that you bring into this, this building this morning. I have no idea where you are. 
None of us have any idea of where this journey is ultimately going to take us. But regardless of circumstance or outcome, I can say this, Jesus is worth it. The, 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 think about Hebrews chapter 11 this way. The author of Hebrews is less concerned about our understanding of the science of how faith works. He, he's far more concerned about us fixing our eyes on Jesus, which he's been trying to get us to do for 10 chapters now, and to trust those promises that find their yes in Jesus Christ. That like my daughter on the beach, that we just keep beholding him day after day, that we just keep looking at him and seeing and savoring him in all of his beauty and splendor because it's in our beholding that we're enabled to persevere like Enoch and Abel. I'm reminded of, of the words of, of three men who stood before a prominent king and his vicious threat of execution as they refused to bow down in the worship of idols. Maybe you re recall this story. Daniel chapter 3, picking it up in verse 16, we're told, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That's Enoch. But if not, Abel, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. In some sense, Faith is not ultimately about our circumstances at all. What ultimately matters is that this is a God worth living or dying for. It doesn't matter what you do to us. Either way, we get God. We gain. May he be glorified through our deliverance or through our death. May he be glorified through our seasons of comfort or through the furnace of affliction. That's the heartbeat of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Beholding Jesus enables us to endure in the midst of both, both comfort and affliction. And let me say this, you have no idea when the tables are going to be turned on you. I thought about saving this for next week, but I'm going to share it now. Uh, Friday evening, fellow Acts 29 church planter and his family, his wife and, and his kids, they were down in Orlando uh, they plant, they're planting in Tennessee. They were down in Orlando on vacation. And Friday night, the wife got an aneurysm, was shipped to the, the ER quickly. Uh, and as of Saturday, just like that, it's taken off of life support. Think about that for a second. From the happiest place on earth, quote unquote, to the loss of a loved one, to the loss of a wife and a mother in a moment. I'm giving it away a little bit, but if you read on in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is going to give you these examples of people who did glorious things by faith, shutting the mouths of lions, um, uh, conquering armies, and then without so much as a blink, almost like what I'm doing this morning, stopping in the middle of a paragraph, right there in the middle of a paragraph, he says, some were sawn in two, some were stoned to death for their faith. It's like on a dime, things can shift so quickly. And I think we think oftentimes that we're bulletproof, particularly in the context culturally that we find ourselves. And might I say that none of us are. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. And I so deeply want us to be a people who, though we can't fully prepare for those moments of grief and suffering that are to come, 
we can prepare as much as we can to have a proactive faith rather than a reactive one. Um, and it's in beholding Jesus that that happens. Just like my daughter on that beach. You see the moon, Daddy? Do you see Jesus? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he glorious? That's why we just keep talking about Jesus around here. We just keep telling you he's glorious, and if you ever get bored with that, then you're beginning to miss it. We, we want you to see him and savor him and then wake up tomorrow and see and savor him all over again so that you can persevere in the either or. And so I would say if you struggle with faith, and we all do, by the way, myself included, behold the goodness, glory, and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're gonna move forward in our service uh, in a number of ways pertaining to the worship of God. Before we do, let me just say this. That's not the, the final word on faith, uh, nor will the next couple of weeks as we continue to dive into this subject matter of faith as we move through chapter 11 and on into the early parts of chapter 12. Um, one of the things that, that I think is critical in wrestling with this, this issue of faith, both for Christian and non-Christian alike, is to dialogue about it. I don't think we can sift all, all of our questions out in the context of a one-sided conversation like what's happening in this space this morning. And so uh, I can think of no better plug or segue into saying, get connected to a community group where you can bat these questions around with other people and present your questions about faith. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to ask the hard questions about faith and reason and to sort those things out, to bring your objections to the table. If you are a follower of Jesus, to ask your questions, is my faith strong enough? What do I do with weak faith? How do I address matters of faith in my own life? How do I know if God's pleased with my faith? Bring those questions together into smaller concentric circles and, and talk those things out. I promise you, God will do great and glorious things in the midst of those environments. And so if you're not a part of a group, um, this morning marks the launch of our groups. This week will be the first meeting of our community groups um, throughout this community and the surrounding areas. There's a little red card underneath the seat in the row in front of you. Uh, you can grab one of those and fill it out this morning. And as you come to receive communion, you can just leave that card on the communion tables. There are two up here on either side of me, and then there's a communion table in the back. Um, by the coffee area, um, would love for you to be a part of a group. Would love to connect you to a group so that you can explore these things that we're talking about um, in the context of, of, a, of a dialogical format, so to speak. Um, as we move forward, we're also going to receive communion. And so uh, the communion table is open between now and the end of the service. Uh, whenever you're ready to come, take the bread and dip in the cup. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Um, we, we take the bread representing the broken body, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Um, I would just encourage you as you prepare to come receive of, of the elements this morning to, to simply ask God a question. Would you strengthen my faith? Would you strengthen my faith? I feel like that's a prayer that God loves to answer and honor. So we can just simply come to him with, with a childlike request. God, would you please strengthen my faith. Would you breathe strength where you see weakness into my life, into my mind, into my heart, into my, the, the deepest recesses of my being? And let's see what he does as a result of that.